Welcome, beautiful people to Can't Code You. My name is Joel, and thank you for joining me as I break down the biggest gaming news from the week that was on the only podcast we will ever need. On today's show, we're going to talk about the 2024 Dice Awards. We're going to close it out by talking about PlayStation and Xbox's future. But first, a quick update from a story last week week about the Nintendo Switch 2. So we started going through a couple of rumors about the Switch 2. We got another fresh one this week. A report last week by Brazilian journalist Pedro Enrique Luti Lipe, which was then backed up by VGC, suggested that Nintendo has now told publishers that its next console will launch in Q1 2025 instead of late 2024 as had been previously expected. Share prices in the company dropped on the Tokyo Stock Exchange following the report, dipping by as much as 8.8% before settling on an overall loss in value of 5.8%. This is kind of weird. A A bunch of people responded to this news by saying, how could... how could there be a delay for something that never actually kind of had a date? And... You know, this is kind of an aspect of our industry that I personally have grown to hate and grown to dislike. I um, I understand that our industry is filled with a lot of secrecy, way more than any other entertainment industry. And I think that that has bred, especially, it's really accelerated within the last few years it's bred this new uh, obsession with secrets and knowing when things are coming out when things are being worked on and it's it's led to leaks some forced like insomniac and you know what happened with rockstar and grand theft auto others are leaks from internally from employees to journalists and content creators that just kind of can't help themselves, right? They they do it because they want the clicks, they want the views. And I don't I don't blame them. Like I don't blame the, you know, the Jeff Grubbs, the Tom Warrens of the world for putting out these rumors because that's you know, that's what they do. They trade in information and they have a lot to gain by leaking things. And at the end of the day, it's not like Jeff Grubb is hacking into PlayStation and Xbox to find all these things. It's not like he has a bug planted in the Microsoft offices. It's all sourced from employees. And it's, it kind of is in a sense frustrating because it's like, it's just kind of become a part of our industry. You sort of, you just kind of have to address it. You can't, really avoid it. You just have to do your best to address it properly, depending on the situation. Like, you know, we did that last year with what happened with Insomniac. And it just sucks that every single week we just hear something new about the Switch 2. And a lot of these rumors have been debunked before. A lot of them have been true. And, you know, now we're hearing apparently this comes from multiple developers that are working on games. And there's enough smoke here to understand that there is a fire that this is probably true and it is actually happening. But 
we also do have to remember that there's no need to look at this as, you know, the pure gospel, like this is definitely happening or it's going to happen un- unless it comes internally from Nintendo and Nintendo has not even acknowledged once that they are definitely working on another piece of hardware. Of course, we all know that they are, but they haven't actually confirmed it. No, this is actually real. So, but obviously this is how the market moves. They lost a bit of value. And a lot of people are talking about what does this mean for Nintendo Switch for this year. There are rumors that the delay was done in part to prepare, to better prepare for the launch of that console. So Nintendo definitely has a better launch lineup or games ready for that um, that initial launch. And, you know, we'll have to wait and see. You know, I've, I've been talking a lot about, you know, backwards compatibility, and I still believe that the best move is to create games that work across the Switch currently and this new Switch and just this new version would give you an, an enhanced, better version of whatever this video game is instead of, you know, splitting your player base right down the middle. And this is a perfect example as to why, you know, you could still have a game slated to release this year, still have a healthy year for Nintendo Switch as a platform and as a console. And then when you announce Switch 2, you just say, yeah, that, you know, that game that we released last year, this is how it's going to be enhanced when you play that on this new Nintendo Switch. But obviously we don't really know, but I want you to just throw that out there that apparently we won't see this console until January, February, March, 2025, which means that at some point this year, we should be looking at some sort of announcement from Nintendo. So our first story, I want to talk about the 2024 Dice Awards. And I've tuned into the Dice Awards before I usually catch a replay. I did it again this year because they begin the broadcast here and on Eastern time, it's around 11 o'clock at night. And I just didn't have the energy to stay up, stay up and watch the whole thing. I you know, sort of saw the intro and a few awards being given away. I just, I was so tired. I was like, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and watch this for a few hours right now. So I had to kind of finish it out over the next few days and catch a replay and you know this was a year you know the the stream numbers were just horrible (laughs) like the mainstream was put on by IGN and I think if you combined YouTube and Twitch and even across multiple channels it looked like it was less than 15,000 people watching and you know it, it, it shows that Jeff Keighley is sort of correct with his award show in terms of why there is such a need for those game trailers. But I also feel like there is a need for this type of award show, a much more pure award show that actually properly honors our industry. It it, it really feels like it was built by and for our industry. A lot of the presenters are 
you know, developers and people within the industry that it, you know, it doesn't feel like this need to have to invite Michelle Rodriguez <laughs> to give out an award. All the awards are done by developers and people from our industry itself, which I think is phenomenal. I love the, the intro, you know, I think Greg and Stella Chung have done a great job over the last few years doing the hosting duties. I think the jokes were kind of a little bit hit or miss, but when they hit, they were pretty good. There was this one embracer joke that a lot of people were, were talking about. And I think that's definitely one thing that I love or loved about this show is that it is not afraid to poke fun. It's not afraid to poke fun at our industry, which is something that is typical of any other award show. When you think either, you know, either Emmys or even, you know, Oscars, Academy Awards, a big part of that opening monologue is, and a big part of reflecting upon the year that passed is delivering it through jokes. And a lot of these were, you know, uh, I, like I said, some of them really completely whiffed and, and missed, to be honest. But some of them, especially like that Embracer joke, were, it's something that I feel like our industry needed, especially the fact that the cameraman and, and the production crew did their job by immediately cutting to what I believe was the CEO of Embracer Group uh, right after Greg sort of talked about how they're fucking up the industry. I thought it was probably, I think it was definitely one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And definitely something that you don't see with Jeff Keighley and the, uh, and the game awards and, you know, multiple moments where we're acknowledging that amidst having a great year in terms of delivering games, it was also one of the toughest years in our industry's history. That was echoed in the award speech for Game of the Year from the Baldur's Gate team. So that opening monologue was was pretty cool to see. Like, I think it's important to be able to reflect and, and, and poke fun and have some fun with these award shows. The I think the only thing that I didn't really like about the award show was the production, you know, presentation. I wasn't really a fan of this motif and style that they went with, which reminded me a bit of like Pentiment, you know, those old school type of flat paper drawings. The actual technical work was amazing, but I just didn't, I, I didn't think it really fit. You know, they did this whole thing where if someone was presented, they'll put their name in like this, it was like a horn with a flag that came out. I don't know. It, it just didn't really click. I didn't think it really made sense. And then just some of the production choices, you know, going through the nominees, I think took way too long. This whole, they played the same fanfare type of theme. You had to hear that theme like 50 times throughout the award show because they played it during every single nominee. So if they read five nominees, you heard this same piece of music five times. And then they announced the winner. You would hear that piece of music one more time. <laughs> and then production made this mistake of playing the actual audio from the game while the recipient was walking to the stage. So just production-wise, I thought it was kind of bad, to be honest. 
I think it's something where it's like, okay, if if, if a game wins, like, you know, uh, Alan Wake wins, you should just be playing an instrumental from the game itself. The other thing that I didn't like is that when someone came up to receive an award, I didn't know who that person was. There wasn't really an announcement to say who is the person that's receiving the award award on behalf of that company. There wasn't a, what do you call it, a Chiron, that little lower thirds to show the name of the person who was accepting the award. I thought that was kind of a miss, especially because, once again, unlike the Game Awards, you know, there aren't very many notable faces. They did do it for the presenters, but I wish they did it for the recipients. They did do something that I had suggested that Game Awards should do, which is doubling up. So you have one person come to present an award. Uh, a nominee comes up, they receive their award, and then immediately that same presenter gets back on a microphone and they give away another award. And that's pretty much how they did the whole night. If a presenter came up, usually they gave out two awards instead of just giving out one and leaving. And obviously that saves a lot, a lot of time. So I thought that that was really smart, but I think they could save a lot of time during the nomination process when actually, uh, you know, talking about the nominees, it was, it it was just kind of like too much fanfare. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of a waste of time with the music and, you know, seeing the same graphic like a hundred times, you know, so outside of that, I, I thought it was it was just really good. You know, the presenters felt really comfortable. No one got played off. It felt like everyone got to say exactly what they wanted to say. They all got the time that they wanted. Um, we got some really good speeches. A lot of people were talking about the Baldur's Gate Game of the Year recipient speech. I also loved Sam Lake's speech. Uh, another one that I thought was a really great speech. I, I, I'll, I'll go through these. So we're going to kind of go through some of the winners in some of these uh, categories. I'm going to rapid fire it a bit because we have a lot to talk about with PlayStation and Xbox. Outstanding achievement and animation went to Marvel Spider-Man 2. Uh, it beat Hi-Fi Rush, Final Fantasy, Mortal Kombat 1, and Super Mario Brothers Wonder. I'm going to be honest with you guys. This became a pattern. Spider-Man 2 really swept this award show, which is really interesting because they didn't win a single game awards. So I thought it would be good to go quickly over how the awards are actually voted in because it's very different from the game awards. The DICE Awards is more of like an internal, right? You, you're being awarded basically by your peers. Game awards are done by the media. And it's a, a 90-10 split vote, 10% being it fan voted. So number one is there are zero fan votes in the DICE Awards. And one thing that I like is that if there are technical achievement awards, they are voted on by uh, developers in that particular field of expertise. So if you're talking about achievement in story, character, audio design, game direction, game design, that's voted on by game designers and producers. Art direction, animation, character, technical achievement. That's voted on by artists, animators, and programmers. Audio design, original music composition, and character. That's uh, decided by audio designers and musicians. And then all of those people can uh, basically give their vote for the winner in 
categories that are a little bit more broad action of the year adventure family game fighting game of the year um and i think that it says here active creative slash techno members will be presented with five finalists in the final follow category game of the year online game of the year outstanding achievement mobile game of the year so it's a lot more specific which i respect i think is really cool that you know i think you're if you that's your area of expertise you should be kind of be the one uh, voting for it. I will say I am kind of baffled by how many Spider-Man 2, how many awards Spider-Man 2 won. I'm not going to say that the, the game was bad. I didn't walk away from the game saying like, wow, this is awful. I, I just feel like the game was not like a lot of the things that it won. And I'm like, really? Like achievement animation? Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't really personally see it versus something like final fantasy or mortal Kombat one and there were a couple of other categories i'm like wow i kind of didn't see spider-man 2 winning that but it spider-man 2 was the game that won the most awards if i'm not mistaken i didn't tally up the number but when i go through this you're going to realize that they probably won the most awards outstanding achievement in art direction went to alan wake 2 which i'm definitely going to agree with i was surprised that starfield was nominated here that's kind of an interesting toy choice it's also cool to see hogwarts legacy was nominated here a game that was kind of overall just completely snubbed from the game awards outstanding achievement in character that went to miles morales which that is one that i will a thousand percent say no i, I don't know how you don't know how you guys came to this conclusion uh no offense to that um that voice actor i think he, he did a great job but he wasn't the best character even in his own game. <laughs> that that was definitely Lurie, Yuri Lowenthal did a, a, a much more phenomenal job. He obviously had a much better, you know, more imperative, deeper part of the script. So he had a lot more to work with. But yeah, he wasn't even the best character in his own game. So I kind of don't understand how um, he was nominated and Yuri wasn't. That's kind of weird. Outstanding Achievement, Original Music Composition. Once again, with Spider-Man 2 really don't get that especially with star wars jedi survivor here had a pretty great soundtrack alan wake 2 had one of the greatest original music compositions i think uh you know with, with their original song that was tied into the game don't understand how spider-man 2 wins here um outstanding achievement in audio design once again what's spider-man 2 don't understand how this beats hi-fi rush uh, I just just kind of don't get it. And once again, like this is something where it's like, you know, it's it's peers, it's your peers within the industry. So technically, like I would trust these picks probably way more than I would tr trust the Game Awards. The Game Awards, you're talking about media, and media still devolves to fans, and they don't understand uh, technically like what makes this game deserving of this particular category i think the people that work in the street will be able to do a better job at picking it but yeah this was very very surprising to see spider-man 2 beat hi-fi rush in achievement in audio design outstanding achievement in story that went to Baldur's gate 3 i'm cool with that one outstanding technical achievement went to spider-man 2 once again i i just i just kind of don't get this because Hogwarts Legacy is here, which technically that game is phenomenal, uh, but also Tears of you know, the Finals is here, which from a technical perspective, like 
you know, the way that they simulate damage is pretty insane for a multiplayer game. And Tears of the Kingdom was here. So I just, I don't understand how Spagoban 2 beats all these games, but especially beats Tear of the Kingdom, Tears of the Kingdom in technical achievement. Uh, insane, insane. I, I just, I really don't, like, look, I'm not trying to put my tinfoil hat on here and, and say anything about PlayStation behind the scenes, but th it's kind of insane. Action game of the year, once again, went to Spider-Man 2. It beat out Armored Core 6, Dead Space, Hi-Fi Rush, Remnant 2. I'm not mad at this one. I'm okay with this pick. Cool. For me, personally, I would have chosen Hi-Fi Rush, but I'm not as baffled as I am with some of these other categories. Adventure game of the year went to tears of the kingdom family game of the year aka the nintendo award surprise surprise went to super mario brothers wonder i don't understand why you guys do the same thing as the game awards this category just makes no sense <laughs> this shouldn't exist fight fighting game of the year went to street fighter 6 now tekken 8 wasn't here i'm going to go ahead and assume it wasn't there for the cutoff date because it came out or it came out this year but uh, yeah, Tekken 8, I think, would have won that. Um, I'm, I'm personally surprised. I'm not really into fighting games. I'm more of a viewer, more so than a participator. I'm, I'm blown away by how well Tekken 8 is doing. I didn't know, like, it's, I, I've, I've seen so many videos and TikToks and tweets about people talking about how it's so much better than Mortal Kombat Street Fighter. I was kind of surprised to find that out. Uh, but yeah, Street Fighter 6 won Fighting Game of the Year. Racing Game of the Year went to Forza Motorsport. No surprise there. RPG of the Year, Baldur's Gate 3. No surprise. Sports Game of the Year went to MLB The Show 23. Pretty cool. I like that there were only three nominees here. I feel like that's a mistake that the Game Awards keeps making where it's sort of, it's almost like it feels like that me the media is pressure to make sure to have at least five. Like, hey, if there were only three quality sports games, drop it. And I also like how they separate sports and racing. I feel like it's, it doesn't make any sense to mix those two. And that's something that the game awards does. And I think they do it. Oh, there's not that many sports games and not that many, it's not that many racing games. Let's just put them together. It's another way that I feel like you, you, you notice that the game award sort of reduces the actual recognition uh, of our industry by making choices like that. Strategy Simulation went to Dune Spice Wars. Immersive Reality Technical Achievement went to Horizon Call of the Mountain. Immersive Reality Game of the Year went to Asgard's Wrath 2. Outstanding Achievement for an Independent Game went to Cocoon. Uh, I also want to point out that Dave the Diver was not nominated here, which was the right move. I do like that El Paso Elsewhere was nominated. That's a, a, a game that I feel was overlooked at the Game Awards. Mobile Game of the Year went to a game called What the Car that I never even heard of, but actually looks pretty cool. I might I might check that out. That was one of my favorite uh, speeches. Unfortunately, I I don't know who this man was because <laughs> the the dice dice did not tell me this person's name, but uh, he was a developer that worked in the game. He had a phenomenal speech. I would definitely you know if you haven't seen it, check check it out. Online game of the year somehow went to Diablo 4. <laughs> I, I kind of don't understand how that happened. It was up against Modern Warfare 3, Omega Striker, Street Fighter 6, and the finals. Um, yeah, I don't know. This, this is kind of a weird category. Outstanding achievement in game design went to Baldur's Gate 3. 
Um, yeah. Uh, okay. There were some games here that I was a little bit surprised by, like Mario Brothers Wonder being here, Dave the Diver being here. I feel like there were other games that we probably could have put in there to be honest with you i honestly feel like hi-fi rush should have been uh nominated here for game design outstanding achievement in game direction that went to Baldur's gate 3 and then game of the year was won by Baldur's gate 3 so no surprise there for game of the year but heavy heavy surprise with marvel spider-man 2 especially like i said given the fact that it won zero game awards and it just completely almost swept every single category it was in I stick by what I said. Uh, I'm not here to say that Spider-Man 2 was an awful game or was a bad game. I just feel like in a lot of these categories, there's just no way. <laughs> like, there's no way it, it beats Tears of the Kingdom and technical achievement. I personally disagree with that. But like I said, once again, this is being voted on by a, a jury of your peers. And I'm not going to sit here and just kind of invalidate the opinion of people who actually work on these video games. I just talk about them. So maybe there's a lot of things that they see that, that I didn't see or we don't see on the surface as gamers. So I don't want to invalidate these choices. Just saying that, uh, I'll be honest, I kind of don't understand them. And of course, I do have to acknowledge the Hall of Fame award that was given to Koji Kondo. And this is an award that I, I've been saying for years about the Game Awards that I heavily, heavy miss, heavily miss, where Game Awards used to recognize an individual or individuals that had a major impact in our industry. And unfortunately, they stopped giving that award away. And I've been saying for a while that I do believe that it's it, it was a decision made to try to fit more trailers because that award i averaged it out and that award used to take about 10 minutes to give away at the dice awards i think it took about the same amount of time to honor koji kondo one thing that i really liked was from the very beginning the it was given away by a person named brian tyler who was a composer for a super mario brothers movie avengers age of ultron fast and the furious and you could tell like it was being given away by a person who really truly admired Koji Kondo. He was talking about how he used to cut out articles about Koji Kondo and put them up on his wall. And then finding out that he was going to be able to finally work with him on the Super Mario Brothers movie. And then finding out that Koji Kondo had his CDs and Koji Kondo was saying that he was also such a huge fan of his work. Just phenomenal. And, you know, like I said, it, this is one of those things that it made me reflect on this, so many of the things that I really hate about the Game Awards, which is, you know, like I think one year at the Game Awards, one of the achievement awards that they have over there, oh, I don't even remember what the heck they call it, the Icon Award, I forgot what they called it, was given away by Jonah Hill. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just kind of weird. Uh, you know, it, it's cool to see that it was given away by someone who had really has a really personal connection to the person that was nominated coming from the perspective of a person who worked with him, but also was a fan of his. I thought that was really cool. Outside of that, I would say like I was a little surprised that I wasn't being given away by someone else internally from Nintendo. But I thought it was really cool that 
uh, it was being given away from that perspective and, 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 and his speech and his presentation was phenomenal. And then they, you know, they did what you know, I remember seeing from the game awards where they had, uh, clips of voiceover. They had a, a minor interview, you know, small interview you heard from Koji Kondo talking about his work on different games, his, his different achievements. The fact that the first job he applied for, you know, was Nintendo and he's been working there for, According to him during his assessment speech, he's been working in video games for 40 years, which is kind of insane. And, you know, he is one of the inspirations behind the name of this podcast, Camp Koji. Like when I was thinking about a name for this podcast, I was writing down a bunch of things that um, I liked and enjoyed a bunch of different games. I, I was just kind of racking my brain for a name of this podcast. And I just started writing down names of people in this industry that I've loved their work and three names looked you know, very familiar to me, which was Hideo Kojima, Koji Igarashi, and then Koji Kondo. So to me, I was like, Oh, that sounds kind of cool. These are three of my favorite creators within this space. Let's just do something with Koji. And that's where camp Koji came from. So, um, it's, it was really cool to see him honored in this fashion. He absolutely, a thousand percent deserves it. Those Nintendo games, especially, cannot be separated from their music. You know, it's one of the, they are one of the few publishers to me where gaming is in, or excuse me, music and, and even sound effects are such an integral part to those game successes. So it was really cool to see him get honored. Our next story is about PlayStation. So Sony's value dropped by around $10 billion last week following its revised PS5 sales forecast. They hoped to ship 25 million units by the end of this fiscal year in March, but will miss their target by 4 million units. The PS5 has now sold 54.7 million units in total. This story comes to us from VGC. In it, Jeffrey's equity analyst Atul Goyal told CNBC that the operating margins at Sony's game division were 12 to 13% for four years and that its current margin of 6% are extremely disappointing and almost near decade lows. He says there are various tailwinds that should have driven up the margins towards 20%, such as the increase in digital game sales as well as Sony's PS Plus service, which has a margin of around 50%. Their revenue on digital sales, add-on content, digital downloads are at all-time highs, and yet their margins are at decade lows. This is just not acceptable. And mind you, remember, this was the year that they raised the price of PlayStation Plus. Technically, the hardware also got a raise in price there was a lot more of a focus and intent on PlayStation Plus and bringing games in there, you know, day one from third parties and then also trying to fuel it a little bit more with their own first-party stuff. PlayStation has actually stopped reporting their PlayStation Plus subscription numbers, and a lot of people are theorizing it's because it's on a decline, not even just that it's stagnant is actually beginning to decline. And I think a lot of it is, let's be honest, a lot of it is due to the price <laughs> sort of going up. But 
I, I do think that the other thing is there are a lot of people that are tired of having to pay for multiplayer, you know? And when you think about PlayStation Plus, especially the essential tier, that's really what you're going towards, especially if none of those games really interest you. You're really getting it so you could play with other people online. Um, also, during a Q&A session, Sony President and PlayStation Chairman Hiroki Totoki was asked why the game division is seeing an increase in gross income, but not in profits, and whether there were any initiatives planned to improve the bottom line. So for those that forgot, Hiroki Totoki is now the interim president until they find a permanent position to replace Jim Ryan, who of course announced his retirement last year. He replied by saying there were two factors he wanted to focus on, hardware and first-party games. Cost reduction in this console cycle is really difficult to come by compared to previous generations due to the increased price of components and implied that console prices wouldn't be dropping while it looked for ways to improve margins. How can we, given the situation, put our product lines together to make it affordable without relying on steep discounts to reasonably sell them to continue our commercial journey on a sustainable basis? I personally think that's important and there's an opportunity in that. In the past, we wanted to popularize consoles and a first-party title's main purpose was to make the console popular. This is true, but there's a synergy to it. So if you have strong first-party content, not only on our console, but also other platforms like computers, a first-party game can be grown with multi-platform and that can help operating profit to improve. So that's another one we want to proactively work on. I personally think there are opportunities out there for improvement of margin. So I would like to go aggressive on improving our margin performance so of course many walked away from this thinking that this means that playstation will now release all games to pc day and date this is i've i own the original playstation so i've been a playstation fan for quite some time i think there have only been two moments in their history that i would say are, have been very pivotal moments for the brand. The first one was right after PlayStation 3, or probably, I wouldn't say in the middle of it, I would say towards the tail end of the PlayStation 3. Coming off of the staggering success of the PlayStation 2, 155 million consoles moved, still holds the record. They dropped the PlayStation 3, their hubris got the best of them, they proudly announced this $600 price point. They told consumers, this is one you're going to want to work harder for, you know, kind of sticking steadfast to almost like this luxury type of brand. Then came all the ridiculousness, the, the boomerang controller, the, the, you know, the E3 presentations, you know, hit the glowing red crab for massive damage, all that stuff. Ridge racer, it, it really was almost like a top-to-bottom disaster for, for PlayStation. You had the, you know, the cell technology and how difficult a lot of developers found creating for that system was. was you know, Xbox 360 became a much more appealing platform to develop for. So that was the first time that I was like, whoa, this is going to be a, this is a pivotal moment for PlayStation. 
and its future. This right now, where we are, I think is the second most pivotal moment in PlayStation's history, which is who their next president is going to be, because they are going to dictate whatever direction PlayStation decides to go in. This is, I mean, as pivotal as it gets. This is a make or break moment, in my opinion, for PlayStation, which is kind of weird because when you look at PlayStation on the surface, they're not doing bad, right? When we're talking about consoles, being able to move over 50 million consoles this generation uh, with multiple things against them, with, with, with COVID, with the price of components going up, they had all the, you know, issues with keeping that system in stock for what felt like close to three years. They couldn't keep the system in stock. They, you, you also have to talk about the fact that there aren't really many PlayStation 5 ex- uh, exclusives. There aren't these, there aren't many express reasons to upgrade. Uh, if you don't feel like you really have to or need to, a lot of these big games came out on previous consoles, God of War, The Horizon, you know, Spider-Man 2 is probably the first one. Well, it's like a major, major PlayStation 5 exclusive. So they, you know, if all these things, again, to, 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 to be able to move over 50 million and still be able to release these commercially successful, critically successful games back-to-back even with Ragnarok, Spider-Man 2 and you know a lot of the other partnerships that they've been able to put together you know two years in a row being able to have a Final Fantasy exclusive is huge for PlayStation this is still a pivotal moment in terms of where does their business move forward from here because what Totoki is saying is Something that I talked about a bit in a recent YouTube video that I uploaded talking about Xbox's future, which is we are past the point where you can release a game on a single platform and have it find enough success to justify the development costs. So you have these AAA costs beginning to balloon. And then on the other side of it, on the consumer side, you have this moment in time where the price of non-essentials has gone up across the board alongside essentials. So for the average consumer and the average family and the average game gamer here in America, all of your essentials have gone up and your wages have not matched them, right? Uh, the cost of food has gone up. The cost of housing has gone up. And the other thing about it is that a lot of non-essentials have gone up and a lot of people have noticed this, even, you know, whether it's going out to eat, whether it's going out to watch a movie, whether it's, um, you know, uh, non-essentials, you know, such as, you know, obviously video games, junk food is like a big one that has gone up. People are like, why the hell am I going to, why, why am I going to pay $13 for a Big Mac meal. Like that's not, that's not really worth it anymore. Why is it a chicken sandwich $4 now? So what, when, when the price of everything begins to go up with your essentials and your non-essentials, the first thing that has to get cut is now is, is are, are your non-essentials. So it's, it's kind of interesting because I, I 
made this call years ago. I had said that when PlayStation starts doing live servers, they're going to start doing PC day one because it just makes the most sense. It doesn't hurt the PlayStation brand. It actually just, just grows it because you're not putting it on your main competitor. Your console competitors would be Xbox and would be Nintendo Switch. So I was right about that. They just um, did it for the first time, Helldivers 2, and it's found this massive, massive success. The Steam chart has peaked at 409,367 as of this recording. It's, that surpasses the all-time highs of Grand Theft Auto V, Destiny 2, Halo Infinite. There's no way that PlayStation thought that this would be that successful. I don't think anyone thought it was going to be that successful. For me personally, when I first saw this game, I, I, I'll be honest, I was the person that slept on it. I was like, eh, it doesn't, doesn't really seem for me. The only time that I kind of started paying attention to this game was when people were, I found out that it had a Starship Troopers connection. I thought it was directly connected to the film. Apparently it's more like a inspired by it, parody of it, but it, it sticks very close to a lot of the themes that I remember from watching Starship Troopers. And it's just caught fi fire. It's gone completely viral and it's supported by a $40 price point. So a lot of people feel like, oh, this is it. This is the switch that's going to change PlayStation strategy going forward. And I, I don't think I'd go that far. Like, I don't think right now there's a meeting going on where they're talking to Insomniac and saying, hey guys, we need to bring Wolverine to PC day one. I don't think that that switch is being clicked immediately. But I, I do believe that two things are going to come out as a result of Helldiver's success, or probably a few things. Number one is I do believe that that window is going to continue to shrink. Herman Holtz has gone on record saying a minimum one year, meaning a year between the release of the PlayStation title to a PC title. And I think that that is going to shrink to be strictly a year. Right now it's over a year. We might see God of War Ragnarok coming out there this year, which would put it at the two year mark, I think it is. But I could definitely see PlayStation now planning to shrink that by a year. I personally believe that it would be a mistake to start doing PC day and day immediately for single player. Let's be honest, it's not the same. <laughs> like when you see the success of Helldivers 2, I don't think now you say, okay, boom, let's let's uh, flip that switch because this success means that uh, we should be doing day and date for single player also. I actually don't agree with that. We've seen their single player games come out. They do okay, they do well, but definitely not at the numbers. It's like Helldivers 2. And I think it's because a game like Helldivers 2 was built for PC and PlayStation gamers in mind. It's very different when you look at these other games, even like Spider-Man, God of War, Ragnarok, or, or, you know, the original God of War that came out, even something like Horizon. I don't think that they're games that are very geared towards PlayStation gamers. Helldivers being a shooter just instantly puts it on a PC gamer's mind. And everything else that that game has been able to accomplish and do you know, the fact that it's at a point where people can't even get into the game. You know, there are people saying that they they, they act, they're PlayStation gamers going online saying they wish the game was on Xbox because they want more help. You know, they, they have this mechanic of making people feel like they're working together towards a common goal, which was a phenomenal decision made by them. But I don't think that um, 
immediately going PC day and date is the right move. But I think that it is the eventual move uh, for them. And they did say that they expect PlayStation 5 hardware sales to gradually decline during the next fiscal year that runs from April 2024 to March 2025. And they confirmed it plans to release no major existing franchise titles during this 12-month period. According to Jeff Grubb, a new Astrobot game may be on the way this year, but obviously that's not what they would consider a major existing franchise, right? So, you know, you wouldn't expect, I guess, Ghost of Tsushima 2 coming out this year or uh, or Last of Us 3 or anything insane coming out uh, this year. And it also doesn't look like Wolverine is going to be ready for this year so a lot of it a lot of playstation this year is going to be third party probably smaller stuff maybe that astrobot stellar blade looks like it's going to do well hell divers you know obviously did really well for them but i think that this is one of the most interesting things about our industry is that we've always looked at playstation as one of the leaders when we talk about playstation versus xbox it's always been playstation even during the era the generation where the xbox gained a lot of ground which was the xbox 360 it was still narrowly outsold by the playstation 3 with all its problems the playstation 3 being like 200 dollars more expensive than the xbox 360 it still managed to outsell it it just shows kind of the power of the brand but even though xbox has always been second the one thing that xbox has always been first uh, in our industry in my opinion has been diversifying the business and finding new ways to diversify profit inside of our industry. That's something that whether if, even if you're a PlayStation stand, you have to respect Xbox for because they have driven our industry forward. Xbox, when you think about that original uh, console, they led the way with multiplayer gaming. They took the risk of putting in a hard drive with every console. Um, banking on broadband being the next big wave for multiplayer gaming, unifying multiplayer through friends lists and gamer tags. That was all on the Xbox, really popularizing voice chat and party chat and having that synergy across all video games. That's something that PlayStation never did. You know, PlayStation, you didn't have a home menu where you can just... You know, your friend was playing one game, you're playing another, and you guys are able to chat and send invites and quickly get into each other's games. That was all Xbox. Then you think about the 360 and diversifying the, the shelf life of a video game. DLC, downloadable content, microtransactions, online stores, smaller games being delivered uh, online only. So when you think about the Xbox Live Arcade, for example... A lot of this was fueled and pushed by Xbox making gaming a multimedia device that was really being pushed by Xbox having Netflix on their stage and, you know, even even putting Twitter, I think, was on uh, the 360. It was it was they taken a lot of steps. And then you think about Xbox one, even if, you know, we look at it as an abject failure, they went PC first. And what's funny is that. Xbox did it out of necessity. I think if Xbox was doing really good, I don't think we'd be seeing PC day and eight, day and date in the Play Anywhere initiative that they started. I think Gears 4 was the first game to use it. I might be wrong. 
of being able to buy a game, get the version also on PC and be able to transfer save files, for example. That was revolutionary. And now PlayStation followed in their footsteps. It's it's a different strategy, right? But you know, you know, their games don't come day and you know, day and date to PC, but it's another it's it's like trophies versus achievements, right? It's it's like the fifth or sixth time that PlayStation has seen Xbox doing something, them being ahead of the curve and going like, man, they were actually right. We we do need trophies. You know, man, they were actually right with Xbox Game Pass. We do need to diversify our services and subscriptions. So then they start with PlayStation Plus Essential, Extra, Premium, all that stuff that they were doing. And this is another thing that I think we're going to eventually have to admit that, or PlayStation is going to have to admit that, damn, Xbox was right. We do need to diversify. We can't have our game on just a single piece of hardware anymore. We're not we're not meeting gamers where they already are. And it's something I've been saying for years, literal years, about one of the uh, biggest obstacles within our industry is that to access the actual art, to access the content, you need a very expensive ticket to access it. And right now in, in, in our society, every other major piece of entertainment flows through this single device that almost every human being on the planet has, which is a mobile phone. When you think about the entertainment industry of music, you can easily access it through your phone. Same thing with TV shows, same thing with films, and same thing with uh, books. All of it is accessible through this one device that you as the creator, you as the publisher, you as the content distributor, whether it's record labels, whether it's film studios, um, you're not subsidizing. You're not building. You don't have to worry about the overhead costs of creating a piece of hardware in a cell phone and making sure that when you sell that piece of hardware, you're selling enough controllers and games to subsidize the amount of money you're you're losing by creating that piece of hardware. You don't have to worry about that. All you have to worry about is creating software. That's it. That's, that's, that's your overhead right there. So one of the biggest issues with our industry is that we're, like I said, we're not meeting gamers halfway. If you meet someone who maybe hasn't played video games in, in, in a while, or maybe has never played a video game, period. It's a lot easier to get them into a mobile game, which is like, man, this is really crazy game called What the Car, you know, that I, I know you don't really play a lot of video games, but I actually think you kind of like it. Um, in that moment, when you're having that conversation with that other person, they are already in a position to access that game. Because they reach into their pocket, they click one button, the app store, they type in what the car, and they can begin playing the game. So from the beginning of that conversation, me saying, man, I think this is a really cool game that you might like, to the moment of that person entering the video game is just a few minutes, literally a few minutes. So what PlayStation is starting to realize is what Xbox was forced to realize years ago which is we need to lower the 
entry point to the bread and butter of our industry, the actual art, the reason why people are here. It's the video games. We have to lower the friction from between the moment a person discovers a video game to the moment that they're actually able to play it. I can't tell someone Red Dead Redemption 2 is an amazing game without going through an entire process to get them to actually play that video game. Because you first have to start off with, okay, what is the entry point? Do you have a PC? Do you have a laptop? Do you already own a PlayStation or Xbox? If you own a PC or a laptop, we have to find out, is it powerful enough to actually play this video game? And if you don't own any of this stuff, then we have to talk about, okay, what's your budget? What's the lowest entry point I can get you into this? Might be an Xbox Series S. It might be a PlayStation 4, Xbox One. Then after buying that piece of hardware, we also have to buy that piece of software. You know, it's it's a lot. From the moment that I tell someone about Red Dead Redemption 2 to the moment that they actually play it, it could be weeks, right? Very, very different from something like mobile gaming, for example. So this has begun become an inevitability and I think it's something that internally PlayStation is realizing now that our exclusive games are amazing. We still have very, very high quality, but it's almost like what Nintendo realized during the Wii era, which is we need to find people that don't typically find us. We need to find people that maybe don't really play video games, how we deliver something to them and I, and try to find that middle ground to meet that potential consumer halfway because a four to $500 ticket to gain an opportunity to play a video game is not very appealing, especially when your main competitors are two sort of very essential pieces of technology in, in modern day, your cell phone and what you choose is your personal computer, whether that's a laptop, whether that's a Mac, whether it's a PC, right? A fully built gaming PC or whatever, what have you. You're competing with these two devices that um, serve multiple, multiple purposes. And you're trying to sell a $500 device that does one thing. <laughs> and it's useless without the additional payment of the video game. So that moves us right into Xbox. So the Xbox business podcast released last week, and this was obviously in response to these crazy, crazy rumors. Xbox was shutting down. They were going Sega. Gears of War is finally coming to PlayStation. Master Chief is joining Kratos and Smash Brothers, all this this crazy stuff. So it uh, was as anticlimactic as I said it was going to be in the last two podcast episodes, which obviously it wasn't going to be as crazy as people were saying. So Phil Spencer confirmed that four unnamed titles were coming to other consoles. He did not name it for a specific reason, and it makes sense. He said each of those teams already has plans to announce those games soon. Once those plans are in place, you're not going to either A, spoil the plan, or mess up any synergy that they have with some of these platforms. So perfect example is we are feeling pretty confident that a Nintendo Switch showcase is going to happen this month. A lot of people are saying it might be a partner showcase. That's a very, very good place 
to announce a game like Hi-Fi Rush. It wouldn't make any sense to sort of take that announcement away from that event, right? Um, I also think it would be a great place to, to announce Sea of Thieves, but... So it's just these four games he did... Um, sorry, uh, just to clarify, the four games that are rumored but have not been 100% confirmed were from Tom Warren at The Verge. He sells Pentiment, Hi-Fi Rush, Sea of Thieves, and Grounded, which is interesting because over one month ago, and I, I double-checked this, I called these four perfectly. And this was during the podcast where we first heard the very first rumor about a game of the year worthy Xbox title going to other platforms. And everyone came to the conclusion it's probably Hi-Fi Rush. And that's when I said, I think Pentiment, Sea of Thieves, and Grounded make sense to also join Hi-Fi Rush on other platforms. So I was right about that. Now, he did clarify that Starfield and Indiana Jones are not one of the four. Now, this is, it's weird because some people look at this as like the beginning of the end. Some people look at it as a pivotal change to Xbox's business, but it's actually neither of those. What people I think are beginning to forget is sort of a few things. Number one is that this is the trajectory that Xbox has been trending towards for years now. The other thing is that Xbox, after all these purchases they've made over the last few years, has now become one of PlayStation's biggest publishers, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. So even if this is maybe like the first time that they've taken a bunch of their console exclusive stuff to other to PlayStation, other consoles, after their purchases, especially after that Activision Blizzard purchase was was done, they instantly in that moment became one of PlayStation's biggest publishers. And we just kind of, we kind of can't forget that, right? We can't forget that games like Diablo 4 are still making a lot of money. And every single time a horse is sold for Diablo 4 and PlayStation, PlayStation is taking 30%. Same thing with Call of Duty that released last year, Modern Warfare 3, the next Call of Duty this year. And, you know, other games, Deathloop, Ghostwire Tokyo, all these other games that are happening across there, older stuff like Minecraft, they have already been doing this for quite some time. So they're just sort of increasing what they're kind of already doing. And this is another moment where Xbox is trending towards where they need to go, matched up with our, where our industry is, is, is trending to go. But it's all sort of being done in a way where they're sort of forced to take the what I believe is the right direction. If all of their investments over the last, I would say, what are we talking about? That like the last eight years or something like that, maybe eight plus, whether it was a Mahjong pickup or or uh, all these studios that they picked up in 2018. I think if everything went right for Xbox, this would not have to happen, right? Think about all the things that have gone wrong for Xbox. The Halo Infinite delay was a huge one, having to delay that game for a year. Rare and Everwild game was announced. We never even saw it. A bunch of games that were announced after these companies were acquired and we just haven't seen them, right? Such as you know, forming a brand new studio studio with the initiative, all of a sudden finding out that there's a bunch of turnover, bunch of issues with Perfect Dark, having to bring in Crystal Dynamics 
to help you finish that game out. We still haven't seen that game. Uh, Starfield going wrong. Redfall being a game that you didn't even green light. <laughs> you had almost nothing to do with. You were just there to release it. And unfortunately, it was a dud, right? Uh, it was not properly handled. And you just kind of have to eat that mistake. You know, Starfield not really doing that well, critically or commercially. It it really felt like everything that they've been doing over the last six, seven, eight to 10 years in order to grow Xbox as a console has just failed. And I do feel like some of it has been sort of unfortunate. Some of them, they do have to 100% own it. But whichever way you want to look at it, the bottom line remains the same. They're not moving hardware. When you invest close to $100 billion buying up a bunch of publishers, at some point, the people that wrote the check are going to come to you and say, where's my money? And that's Microsoft. I think a lot of people forget that Xbox didn't buy shit. Microsoft bought everything, right? It was just Phil Spencer and his team meeting with Satya Nadella and his team and convincing them, this is our plan. This is how much money we need. And the plan that they came up with was to bolster their first party lineup with, by buying a bunch of studios up, letting Satya and his team know that the future of video games is an IP. We have to own and operate the correct IP before someone else does. So look at the Zenimax purchase, look at the Activision purchase, going to Satya Nadella and saying, look, we're hearing that PlayStation is about to put Ghostwire Tokyo one-year exclusive, Deathloop is going to be a console exclusive, and now we're hearing that they're going to put Starfield as a console exclusive. We have to do something. So they did all that, and then number three was telling them that the future is a consumer choice. It's not just going to be in paying $60, $70 a pop per game. We need to do something a la carte. We need a subscription service. We need a Netflix for games. And that's when they went to Satya Nadella and his team, and they got what I would consider consider a, a perfect burn amount, almost a blank check to set up Game Pass because you know that setting up Game Pass, setting up X Cloud, you're 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 lo- you're 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 projecting to lose a lot of money to set that up, and then hopefully it clicks, you break you break even, and you're able to turn it around. So when you talk about outside of just the price of purchasing these studios, when you think about the expense of operating these studios, the development costs of fueling future development, they spent well over $100 billion for um, their just their Xbox division over the last few years. And Microsoft is now, where's my money? What's going on? <laughs> so it's simple what happened in Xbox. They failed, right? There's There's been a failure in their system. They can't move hardware. And it reminds me of what happened during the Xbox One. They had to make a pivot. For the Xbox One, their pivot was towards Game Pass. And their pivot was towards purchasing IP, creating new teams. We can't rely just on third party, right? That did not work. They're now at another crossroads where they have to make tough decisions. And once again, being forced into a direction that technically, in my opinion, makes sense. And it starts with, we got to start putting these games on PlayStation and Nintendo Switch. Nintendo Switch and PlayStation 5 combined, that is a brand new pool of close to 200 million new consumers. I have, once Hi-Fi Rush releases on those two consoles, 
I now have a potential 200 million new customers for that one game. And then you put you 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 sort of think about that for a game like Sea of Thieves that's over 5 years in that is a phenomenal game, right? A lot of people have been praising it um, for what it's been able to accomplish in terms of a pirate themed multiplayer game. There's nothing better than Sea of Thieves. You're looking at generating a lot of healthy revenue putting that on PlayStation and Nintendo Switch. And all that revenue is now going to come back to these studios to fuel maybe a Hi-Fi Rush sequel and things like that. I think that it's definitely not the end. But I also don't think that it makes any sense for them to sort of give everything away. I personally don't think that that makes any sense. I think that there are certain games where it's like you cross a line with your player base. Starfield, to me, is very close to that line. Indiana Jones would have been crossing the line, in my opinion. Uh, even other stuff that people are talking about, like Halo and Gears of War, that's that's you cross the line. That basically means that, you're, you're like I said, you're giving away the shop. It doesn't make any sense to do that. But a game, for example, like Hellblade 2, Hellblade 2 comes out this May, it's online only. That's a game that had the first game on PlayStation. And that's a game that, to me, makes sense putting on PlayStation within two years of the release of Hell, uh, of Hellblade 1. That's a game that I can 100% guarantee you will be on PlayStation 5 at some point. Indiana Jones, if I'm Phil Spencer, I'm, I'm saying absolutely not. Not only because that game was, you had to renegotiate with Disney so that it doesn't go to, you know, you had to renegotiate with Lucas to make sure that it's not going to PlayStation. Now you're going to reverse that again. That's a game that to me is not a console seller per se, but it's an ecosystem seller. You can't give away Indiana Jones. Starfield is one that I'm open to conversations about. That's one that's a little bit tough. I think it toes the line, but I'm open to having a conversation about it. This is the direction that they need to go in. It's just, it's, I look at it as an inevitability and I go into it in depth on the YouTube channel. I put out a video that talks about that. And I feel really confident that I think that that's Xbox's direction. Other thing that they announced here was that there are currently 34 million Game Pass subscribers. That includes Game Pass Core, but according to Phil Spencer, he claims the bulk of the growth was on PC. I remember on this podcast saying that Xbox was out of their mind, putting a, project, a projection of 100 million Game Pass members by 2030. I, I, I just don't see them ever. I just, I just don't see how they can hit that unless uh, they get Game Pass on PlayStation, which wouldn't make any sense for PlayStation to allow it or getting it on Nintendo Switch. I still think that that's a path for them to pursue. Um, I've been saying it for a while. But 34 million is not great. It's also not bad. It's not terrible. Um, but yeah, uh, not super great. They did say Diablo 4 is coming to Game Pass March 28th, though. And Matt Booty did reiterate that first-party games are still debuting on Game Pass. Game Pass this year, they should have a really, really good year for Game Pass because, uh, you know, you have the upcoming Call of Duty game. And according to him, this is going 
day and date. This is going day one on Game Pass. That should be a huge boost to it. But then, you know, there are also a lot of great games coming out this year, whether it's Avowed or whether it's, you know, um, Hellblade, whether it's, and especially Hellblade, I think that's a perfect Game Pass game. Of course, Indiana Jones. So they should see a big boost in Game Pass this year. Sarabond also did confirm that there is, you know, um, another hardware generation that they're focusing on, delivering the largest technical leap you will have ever seen in the hardware generation, which makes it better for players and better for creators and the visions that they are building. There was also another quote that was making the rounds during an, a, an interview after the podcast where Phil Spencer says, quote, I will say when I look at a game like Helldivers 2, it's a great game. Kudos to the team shipping on PC and PlayStation. I'm not exactly sure who it helps in the industry by not being on Xbox. If you try to twist yourself to say like somehow that benefited somebody somewhere, but I get it. There's a legacy in console gaming that we're going to benefit by shipping games and not putting them on other places. We do the same thing. Now that's the full quote. A lot of people miss that. I think they cut out that part where he did say we do the same thing. So I saw a bunch of, quote tweets where people are like, wow, this is hypocritical, but I don't think it's hypocritical because he did acknowledge like, I mean, who, who am I to talk shit? We actually, do, we actually do the same exact thing, but Helldivers 2 is actually a perfect game that's, look, I, I brought this up on Twitter and I brought it up, I believe on last week's episode, which is Crazy, these types of crazy conversations happen internally all the time. So a lot of people are talking about a few websites that were spreading this information about so many games being on the table. Gears of War, Starfield, Indiana Jones, uh, Halo coming to PlayStation. And people are like, wow, these people are just lying. I don't think they were lying. I said on Twitter that I believe that these leaks are coming from Xbox. And I think that this consideration between how many games go to other platforms was an Xbox versus Microsoft conversation. I think Microsoft is just thinking purely bottom line. We need more cash flow. Why can't we just start putting all these games over on PlayStation? And I, my personal theory is that someone internally at Xbox decided to, to leak the worst case scenario. And the worst case scenario would have been what Microsoft wanted, which was for kind of everything to go over to PlayStation. Why not? What, what are we waiting for? And what I need people to acknowledge and understand, these conversations happen all the time. Years ago, when PlayStation sat down and said, wow, I think we have to do something we've never thought of before. I think it's time we start considering games going to PC. I can guarantee you, even without me being in that boardroom, that there was a plan in place for what does it look like if games come out day and date on PlayStation and PC. These types of conversations happen all the time because they need to happen. You need to have these conversations. The problem with what happened at Xbox is that these conversations are never supposed to be consumed by the public because unfortunately... The public doesn't understand how to consume it. And then the other problem is that when this information is filtered through content creators, either original sources like Jeff Grubb, Tom Warden, Jess, uh, Jess Corden, Tom Warren, I said Warden, 
or content creators, Stan accounts, YouTube accounts, Twitter, they don't know how to properly handle that messaging. That's the one thing I've noticed is that even if you're writing an article, I feel like they're not doing a good enough job of telling people like, look, these are conversations that happened. It doesn't mean that this is what's happening. When they write an article or they write a headline, unfortunately, that's just taken and it's morphed. It instantly becomes, oh, that's it. Xbox gave up. I'm selling my Xbox. And I think that a lot of these content creators and even some of these writers are not well equipped to fully explain to people what these conversations mean. Same thing happened at Nintendo. Nintendo realized years ago, like, man, are we making a mistake by ignoring mobile gaming? And during those conversations, there were, I guarantee you, scenarios brought up of what happens if we put a full-fledged Nintendo game on mobile. What does that look like? How do we monetize it? And that's when you start going into your research phase. And then they realize that, no, this doesn't make any sense. We're going to cannibalize our hardware if we put the same exact games on mobile. And eventually they came to the right decision, which is like, hey, I think we can put games on mobile and have that synergy move over to Nintendo Switch and help us sell Switch consoles. And that's how they came up with the Nintendo Switch app and Mario and, you know, the Mario Kart game and all those different stuff that came out. They experimented with a brand new IP going over, gotcha games going over to mobile. And the experiment is sort of over, but I don't think it's fully forgotten. I can guarantee you right now that at Nintendo, they've had and are continuing to have conversations about what does it look like if a Nintendo game came to PC. And how could you not? How could you not have a meeting that talks about something like Pal World and say like, man, this is kind of indicative, not really of Power World success or the type of game that it is. It's indicative that we are ignoring a mass market of people that want Pokemon on devices outside of Nintendo Switch. Well, is, is that ever going to happen? I don't know. I personally think that at some point, it just becomes too big to it's it's like it's too much money to be ignored at, at you know when it comes to putting games over on PC so that brings us into what is Xbox's future and i went into it really in depth on that youtube video so definitely go check it out on the on the camp koji channel i'm not going to go too crazy for the podcast especially because we're over an hour already but I brought up three points that I think the Xbox needs to hit for their future. In that video, I flesh it out. Number one is accelerating points of access. Number two is hardware continuing to be a pivotal entry point. And number three is building a network, a distribution network that works for everyone. This I think is Xbox's only play. And I think what's really interesting is that even though we look at this, we, we look at our industry very much as like generations. Who, who Who's the winner? Who's the loser? Console wars, blah, 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 this, that, and the third. And I've been saying for literal years, and if you, if you listen to Camp Koji, thank you, and you know I've been beating this drum for a very long time, that the future of our industry is separating hardware from software, knocking down exclusivity walls, and uh, 
removing the friction of accessing video games. There is only one company that has that is positioned to do that, and that is Xbox. I think the only difference now with their pivot and their move is that they understand that it's no longer about the health of their console business and their hardware business. It's more about the, the health of their services and their software and their distribution. Because there is no better opportunity for Xbox to realize their vision than right now. And the best thing is that they are prepared, unlike PlayStation, they're prepared to take advantage of where we're about to go. Because remember, we're, we're heading towards the digital future. It is inevitable, right? So think about it inter like internally if you're having business meetings. You, you basically now have a window into the future. Whereas in the past, it's sort of like a little bit of like a shaky guess, right? Nintendo, even though we can look at the Switch now as like mega successful, it was still kind of, it was still a risk, right? You're, you're shutting down your, sorry, not shutting down. Well, actually, yeah, you're shutting down your console business and almost like shutting down your handheld business and you're putting them together. You're, you're, you're merging both of those. So now you're risking this bread and butter, this for sure um, profit machine that was Game Boy, Nintendo DS, your handheld um, market. And it still was a risk to create that hybrid console. And look, every decision that they made was correct. But like I said, it was still a risk. Part of that risk was... Well, how much are people going to want to take games with them? How big is going to continue to be this mobile market? And they made the correct call at the correct time. Same thing, as, as I could say, with Steam and Steam Deck. A lot of, you know, Xbox tried that with Xbox One. They thought the future was going to be no controllers. It was going to be connect, controlling things with your voice. It was going to be multimedia. I don't know if anyone remembers this, but when the Xbox One first launched, one of the biggest features they talked about was that you could play a video game while, while watching a football game, which is kind of true, right? We're now at this point with social media where people can't take in two minutes of information without seeing the second half being subway surfers, right? So maybe they were kind of ahead of their curve. So they took a risk on that direction, but they were wrong about they thought that that was the direction that game was were heading towards. They now have the forethought and the knowledge to know that we are trending as an industry towards essentially forcing consumers into digital only. So once that happens, how can I put my business, my company in the best position to capitalize on that? And they've been building it for years. Xbox's biggest issue right now is they lack acceleration. And I think that it's weird that Xbox still hasn't technically exceeded what we saw from Google Stadia, for example. Like they, it, it should be at a much better, cleaner, clearer point. People shouldn't still have to be waiting 10 minutes to get into xCloud, for example. Um, that Game Pass xCloud app needs to be on every single TV. Like you need to have these multiple points of entry. Phil Spencer claimed that their, I think it was called Keystone, their project for creating like a streaming stick that plugs into your TV. They couldn't get the financials right. They couldn't get the price point to where they needed it, where they needed it to be. This is their moment. And 
I personally feel like this is the only play that Xbox has left. If Xbox continues down this path of trying to create exclusives to get people to buy the next Xbox, it's just not going to work. It's no longer going to work anymore. Even PlayStation is starting to realize like, man, we, you know, Spider-Man 2 was over $200 million that we put into that, into that budget. Our gamers are telling us they want this high quality. We can't sustain it. The numbers just aren't making sense anymore. For Nintendo, it's sort of still making sense because Nintendo isn't trying to do the latest and greatest and fidelity and their um, budgets aren't ballooned to the point that they are here in America with, with a lot of these publishers. They still run very, very lean. And I think they're still very focused on having complete control over their hardware and their software. But I think for PlayStation, they need to to adjust. Xbox, like I said, I think this is the only play that they have left. And I I I think that over I think within this last month has been the 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 most amount of stories that I think I've predicted correctly in Camp Koji history. There have been multiple stories coming out where I'm like, oh yeah, I remember predicting this happening. And I personally think that this Xbox prediction is going to be the, is also going to be the correct one because I, I feel like it's the only play that Xbox has when entertainment loses its physical form and goes digital consumers are going to seek what is the best alternative. Currently the best digital platform is steam. There's no competitor. Steam doesn't have a competitor when it comes to digital uh, libraries, Steam is king. And they are furthering its purpose by finally su- launching a successful piece of hardware with the Steam Deck. Remember, they've tried hardware before. It's never really worked. Steam Deck has really been their first success, their first runaway success. If they start pushing another Steam and they really push marketing for it and they showcase that it is very Switch-like, and they they try to market it broadly across different spectrums. And they show that, hey, it is portable. It is something that you can plug into your TV. It's a wrap. Because they have the ultimate piece of hardware. Not only because it includes all those Xbox games, it includes all these PlayStation games, which we we know, once again, the, the window is going to start shrinking. We're going to see... PlayStation games come to PC even faster. Xbox is already every single game that Xbox makes is coming to PC. They dropped that gauntlet years ago. So if you're Steam, you're already, you've won the PC game. There's no PC storefront that can match Steam now. Epic Games tried, they're just dumping money. They're losing money left and right. People look at a game like Dead Island 2, Alan Wake 2, which are like epic exclusives. And they go, man, that game looks really cool. I'll wait till it comes to Steam. Think about every single other company that tried a PC launcher. They eventually failed and they go right back to Steam. Activision Blizzard tried, back to Steam. Ubisoft tried, back to Steam. Rockstar tried, back to Steam. EA tried, back to Steam. (laughs) It's a juggernaut. So it's really interesting how we've been talking about a console war. The console war is over. This shit is done. 
It's cooked. We are now going into the digital war, the, the digital library, the digital distribution war, and Steam is king. In that arena, there is no competitor. Steam is king. Even for me personally, my Steam library has grown over the last few years because when I think about a game on computer versus a game on console, the computer version has many advantages. Number one is mods. Modding is a huge advantage. I don't know how the fuck any of you guys put up with Starfield on Xbox. I don't know how any of you did it. There's no way I'm playing that game on Xbox. It's horrible, right? Compared to to the uh, the PC version. Then you think about a game like Helldivers 2. I've been considering getting Helldivers 2. Why would I buy the PlayStation version? As long as I have a rig that can run it, why would I buy the PlayStation version? The PlayStation version is more expensive by default. That's a multiplayer game. A lot of people have, I've read enough stories to know that you need a squad for certain difficulties to, to progress in the game. You need to play with other players. By default now, that makes the game, instead of 40 bucks, it's a minimum $100 game because I need to get the minimum online package for PlayStation, which is $60 a year, or I'm going to be paying $10 every month. That game is not $40 on PlayStation. On PC, it is $40. So it's one of those things where it's like, why? Why would I buy the PlayStation version? Fair Games is another uh, game that's coming out. Concord, I think, is the other PlayStation live service thing. There's rumors of Twisted Metal. Why would I ever buy those games on PlayStation? They're more expensive by default. Why would I do it? So once that window begins to shrink, and now I'm telling you that I can guarantee you that the Pokemon company is having those conversations about Pokemon coming to PC. Once these walls begin to start crumbling, there's one point where they all converge as PC. So Xbox really only has one play left. And this is why they're actually in a better position than PlayStation is. Because they're preparing for this consumer future where me as a consumer, I want to find what's the most convenient platform. And if you tell me you know, Ubisoft announces Assassin's Creed Red. That game comes out. Where should I buy this? Okay. Well, if I buy Assassin's Creed Red on PlayStation, I need a PlayStation to, to, to use it. I need my PlayStation 6, whatever. I need, I need to put a disc in there. Once I buy it, I need to be home. Or I need to use remote play on my cell phone that's sometimes not really reliable. And sometimes it can be kind of wonky. Or I can buy Assassin's Creed Red on the Xbox. When I buy on an Xbox, I have access to it on my PC, with my cross saves, on my cell phone, on my laptop, on my MetaQuest, on my TV. I can, I can stream it. I can get it locally. I can play on my Asus ROG app. You know, you have access to so many options and that flexibility that Xbox sort of becomes a very good place to look at, especially, like I said, in that YouTube video, if they really focus on delivering consumer value. And that's why I made that declaration, that YouTube video where I said, yeah, I think what's the end game? What's the end game? Once we go digital only, where are we trending towards? 
And I think we might be heading towards a place where, you know, Phil Spencer calls up whoever this next PlayStation president is and says, hey, let's go out to dinner. And they begin to have that conversation of saying, you know, there was a moment years ago where Microsoft and Sony entered into an agreement deal for Azure and cloud gaming. And part of that agreement that Phil Spencer brought up was that our competitors are Amazon and Google. I don't think it's really far-fetched to think that at some point Phil Spencer is going to have that dinner again and say, Steam is obviously a threat to our business. I own all these publishers. You own some amazing developers. But we both know that everything that we make, we need PC in order for the numbers to make sense. Once we do that, we're just giving Steam free users. Why would a user buy into PlayStation or Xbox when they could just go to PC? So it's like, when you think about what can compete with Steam, it's the same thing as the question of what can compete with Netflix. The reason why Disney Plus became a worthy um, competitor with Netflix is it had a bunch of content that you could only get on Disney Plus. And like I said, I know it sounds insane to think, but is it super insane for PlayStation to join Xbox and say, yeah, I think we need to, can you, can you guys create a, a PC launcher that makes sense for us to share in the revenue and, and PlayStation games for PC have to go through your launcher and, and we're capturing that 30% and we own the platform together and, and we're hosting third-party content. We combine our powers. I, it, like I said, it sounds insane, but does it really? Does it really sound super crazy to think something like that is possible in the future for these two companies to realize, like, I think this is the path forward. If we tell people, like, look, this, whatever app that they create, Xbox, PlayStation, hybrid, PC launcher, this is the only place to get the next Halo, the next God of War if you're a PC gamer. And once you buy it through the Xbox network, you can now play it on any TV. Uh, you can just hook up your PlayStation controller uh, to dedicated PlayStation Xbox hardware, but you'll still be able to access the same games. Is that insane to think that that might happen over the next two decades? I, I don't think so. Obviously, we'll have to wait and see. This week's high releases, February 20th, Nightingale, PC Early Access. February 21st, Final Fantasy XIV, Xbox Open Beta. February 27th, 22nd, excuse me, Inkluminati uh, enters full version because it was early access before. PC, PS4, PS5, Switch, Xbox One, Xbox Series X. Pacific Drive, PC, PS5, Splatoon 3, Side Order Expansion on Switch. And Sons of the Forest leaves early access February 22nd on PC. Time for us to wrap it up. Stories we didn't have to, time to get to. Embracer has confirmed they have canceled 29 unannounced games between July and December and has laid off 1,400 employees and says more cuts are coming. I don't think any entity in gaming history has done more damage to our, to our industry than Embracer Group. It's really, really insane to see. According to Sega, the upcoming Crazy Taxi is a triple-A game. I'm getting so tired of this moniker of triple-A game. Let's be honest, we all know Crazy Taxi is not going to be a triple-A game. I think we've lost sight of exactly what that that uh, those letters mean. And I think triple-A is starting to become a yucky term. 
especially in the light of games like Baldur's Gate 3, Helldivers 2, Paul World. I think a lot of people have been saying like, look, we're okay if the game might have some flaws. We're okay if the game is not, uh, you know, super duper feature complete. We just want a really, really fun games. Please try to trick me into buying shit. Um, so crazy tech. So I'm saying AAA, I'm telling you right now, AAA is becoming a yucky word. You guys have to stop using it. A UK supermarket called Asta is reportedly selling Immortals of Avium for a single pound. It costs around $125 million to make that game. A former dev claims, quote, a AAA single player shooter in today's market was a truly awful idea. I rented this game. I was not able to finish it. I just got really bored of it. Uh, I disagree with this thing about the reason why I failed as a single player shooter in today's market. It came out at a really, really bad time. It kept getting delayed. Then it came out between Baldur's Gate and Starfield. And the game was one of those games that I remember immediately, especially after playing it, I was saying this game is expensive for no reason. There was no reason for it to be on Unreal Engine 5. There was no reason for them to hire actors instead of getting voice actors. It, it just was, it was just a bloated game. You can tell like it died in the budget. It, it really got too much money. And I think that's why I failed. Um, shout out, shout out to the week, shout out to Yoshitaka Murayama, creator of Suikoden and the upcoming Ayuden Chronicle. Unfortunately, he did pass away last week. May he rest in peace and shout out to Remedy. Alloyake 2 has sold 1.3 million copies and is their fastest selling game to date. That's really amazing when you remember that this game has yet to release on Steam. Epic, uh, published it or they helped publish it. And they released it only on the Epic Games Store. The last time they did this was Dead Island 2. And that was a one-year exclusive. If that also happens to Alan Wake 2, we don't know that for a fact. It would have released on Steam in October. I don't think Epic is going to ignore Steam. Once again, the, the company's gotten so big, you can't ignore it. So hopefully it comes out there in October for more people to enjoy it. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Please follow us on Twitter and YouTube at can coach you for future updates once again i'm joel and i will see you all next week